getting paid to travel. It was a dream job for an ambitious young woman like Kate Jewell, becoming a flight attendant for American Airlines. The planes looked like massive silver bullets with a red stripe down the side, taking passengers all over the country and all over the world. It was 1970, back when it was more common to see a three-piece suit than a sweatsuit at the airport. Pilots were idolized, and flight attendants in their neat and tidy uniforms were the stuff of teenage fantasies. Kate traveled the world for more than a decade, and she was still traveling when, at 38, she booked an appointment with a highly recommended naturopathic doctor, John Brendan. Their connection was immediate. The romantic doctor would surprise her with flowers and dote on Kate day and night. He was a little compulsive, a little obsessive, but that was part of his charm, part of what made him such a great doctor and such an impressive man. Kate and John moved in together, living in a little country house in Gold Beach, Oregon, just up the coast from California. They enjoyed gardening together, taking care of their little piece of heaven. But there was another side to the charming doctor, a jealousy that he couldn't keep at bay especially when he started drinking. It was a secret that Kate kept from her friends and family for years, until she couldn't any longer. In May of 1999, Kate was out working in the garden on a hot spring day when John asked her to take a break and come inside. But instead of a cool drink, John pulled out a knife. Something clicked in him. He told her, What's it feel like knowing this is the last day of your life? He tied Kate to a chair, beat her, raped her for hours. He told her he was going to cut her into pieces and dump her dismembered body into the sea. It was John's obsessive compulsive habits that gave Kate the break she needed. When he left to use the bathroom, she made a daring escape, jumping out of a second story window, then running naked through the brush to her neighbor's house to call 911. As the police are racing toward the house, he's driving slowly the other way. The cops are put on high alert. John is wanted for assault, rape, and attempted murder. But the charismatic doctor had vanished. And Kate was left wondering, could he be back to try again? She didn't want to wait to find out. She'd heard about a little hamlet called Orcas Island, just to the north in Puget Sound a place where nobody had ever been murdered. And Kate could create a new identity, leaving her old life and her violent ex behind her. If only it were that easy. She did not know that John had moved to Gig Harper because uh, you know she's living there in secrecy. She had not contacted her family for eight years because she was afraid that he would find her and kill her or kill her family. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio and this is the scene of the crime. Wow, Kim, this is going to be a great one. A shout out to one of our listeners, Julie Saltvik. We love getting feedback and tips. I don't know about you, but I'm like a troller on our Facebook page. And I just love it when people reach out to us, give us ideas for stories. One of these ideas, the, the story you're going to be doing, is by Julie Saltvik. 
And she wrote to us and said, hi there, your podcast about Carbone's Janovich was amazing. She's referring to the The Enterprise. Yeah, the Carbone's that we kept talking about. So apparently she grew up in Gig Harbor with those families. But she said, the real reason I'm writing to you is I'd love it if you did a podcast on Turi Bentley. I got to know her and John a few years before. Well, I don't want to scoop the plot. Yeah. But anyway, we want to give a shout out to Julie and say thank you. And for those listening, please, if you have um, ideas for shows, for stories that you'd like us to cover, you know, just reach out to us on our Facebook page. Make sure that when you try to reach out to us that you go to the Scene of the Crime podcast on Facebook because there's another one that's the Scene of the Crime that's not us. So you will find our smiling mug somewhere on Scene of the Crime podcast. Shoot us a message. And um, we would love to get your feedback, but also story ideas. And one, we actually got another story idea from a listener named Larissa Caden. She also says how much she loves the podcast. And she had a suggestion for an episode, The Tube Sock Killings in Mineral, Washington. And Kim, I have been trying to get research this, and it's happened a long time ago. So if you know anything or anyone related to the case of the tube sock uh, killings in Mineral, please hit us up because I'd love to talk to you. That sounds like an interesting case. I know. <laughs> yes, it is a very interesting case. So if you know any, mo- any have any tips for us, please reach out to us there. Or you can go to our website and find us at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com and uh, look for us there too. So let's go back to the story now. You'll remember the attack on Kate happened in 1999. I just have to point out that it's not actually the attack on Kate that we're going to be talking about, but that attack is going to play a big role in this story. And we're going to fast forward a few years. So before I take you to this scene of the crime, I have to tell you a little bit about this week's guest. Dr. Randall Nazawa is a very optimistic thoughtful, forgiving person, despite everything that has happened in his life. And it has been a lot. So let's start with the car accident he was in, in 2003. Kind of a a strange occurrence. I was run off the world on a very peaceful night and I crashed the car into a tree. And what happened there was a tree branch broke through a windshield and got stuck in my brain. And, you know, wearing my seatbelt like, you know, good boy. But my head did end up hitting the steering wheel. And, uh, you know, tree branch uh, broke through the windshield and got stuck in my brain. So I, and that ejected the left eye out of my head. And when I was found, the right eye was uh, dangling on my right cheek by the optic nerve. And it was a pretty damaged eye. So they, you know, they put back the eye. The optic nerve was stretched. And uh, the front part of the eye was damaged. And uh, a lot of brain swelling. So they had to leave my skull off for a couple of weeks, what I was told, until the skull swelling went down. And, you know, they kind of patched back my, my face and all that. And I said, well, couldn't, couldn't you have guys made me look more like Tom Cruise and all that? Can I get something out of this deal here? <laughs> and this is what I really appreciated about Randall. You can tell right from the beginning. We haven't even gotten to other hardships that, that this man, this doctor, this dentist will endure. But he's got a great sense of humor, you know, yes. as he's describing a horrific a car accident and the way that he describes it and he's you know i think that having a great sense of humor it it really can pull you through a lot of things and he's testament to that as we will as we will hear and especially when you know you have something that is not only difficult to endure in the moment but just this long recovery that he had to go through. He had to, you know, keep up his spirits. It took him over a year. He had to relearn how to walk, how to talk, how to use the limited vision that he had left with his one eye. Mm -hmm. He was able to see shadows and colors, but not really 
focus on anything, couldn't read anymore, couldn't drive anymore. At the time, he was a successful dentist, and he tried to get a special microscope so he could still see enough to treat his patients, but it just didn't work. So he decided he just needed to find a new path in life. He'd always been very interested in health and wellness and started working at a gym, working with clients on their diets, personal training, teaching yoga and Pilates. His wife, meantime, owned a restaurant in Gig Harbor where they lived. Gig Harbor, uh, it actually has a special place for me in my heart. When I was a kid, we, there, there, so basically there's Tacoma, Washington, which is kind of like the little sister to Seattle. Yeah. And Gig Harbor, you have to traverse. Although they would really be offended that we just said that. Okay. Well, I, you know... <laughs> Well, 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 how would Tacoma you... is just south of Seattle. Okay, so Tacoma <laughs> is just south of Seattle. Anyway, Gig Harbor, you need to have a bridge to get over that. And in the 1940s, they built this bridge, and they ended up calling it Galloping Gertie because after four days of building this bridge, all of a sudden, it, it basically, they didn't build it right. And so if you look at footage from that time period, like in the 1940s. Yeah, I've seen it. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Galloping it's like waves or something. Yes. This bridge is just moving. It, it's moving like there's an earthquake. So it totally goes down into the into the sound. And they have to re, they have to wait till World War II happens. And then they can rebuild another one. So anyway, when I was a kid, we used to go across Narrows Bridge and go into the town of, of Gig Harbor. And it was just a really gorgeous waterfront town. It's a bay to Puget Sound. Anyway, it's just I'm setting the scene for it's a really beautiful place to live and and be. So I can imagine this restaurant on the water was, you know, a really cool spot. Yeah, it did pretty well. I mean, fortunately, Randall was not able to work during this time. His wife worked really hard at this restaurant, apparently, to help support the family. And so he would go occasionally as well and, and work at the restaurant to help. One time there was this very charming naturopath and his wife who came in for a meal and Randall's wife was instantly impressed by their loving relationship. She would later tell her husband that she hoped they could be like that couple someday. Sometime later, they saw this couple again, and this time Randall was at the restaurant helping out. So he got a chance to talk with the doctor himself, and Randall says he could understand his wife's initial first impression. He was clearly a brilliant guy, charming, engaging. He also happened to be a naturopath, which is a line of work that fit perfectly with Randall's interests in health and wellness. Now going by the name John Williams, he and his wife, Tori Lee Bentley, were starting a business. They were selling natural supplements, which Randall says actually seemed to work pretty well. This company seems to be very legitimate and it was a, you know, a worthy type of product of what I could research. And so, you know, uh, for the next over two years, I would spend my days, it's almost every day of every week with John and Tori selling or, you know, giving seminars, nutritional seminars, especially for people at, at the gym and other people I met. I would talk about, you know, my experiences and, uh, and actually that, that helped me, I thought, speed my recovery from, from the car wreck. And uh, so I'm, I'm feeling very comfortable. The, the thing is that, you know, John is an interesting character. You know, his real name is John Brandon, which I did not know. And I knew that he was a retired naturopath and he also had a, a second doctorate uh, in clinical nutrition. So the guy's very brilliant. And he would only give out small bits of information about his past. And what I've learned later, a lot of it was lies, and a lot of it was confabulated, a lot of it was uh, exaggerated, but, but he was very brilliant. Uh, the guy was a thinker. I knew a lot of nutrition, he knew more. I said, oh, great, I can learn from him. So over the next few years, Randall's relationship with John and Tori grew closer. 
even though he noticed their relationship wasn't as perfect as it had seemed at first. The guy's charming, and he'll look you square in the eyes. He's very good with people, but he wants to be, because he wants something. And what I noticed with him is two things, a sincerity of wanting to get close, but a, a loneliness, because I think he knew uh, who he was, or what he was, and but uh, uh, he was always in control. Saturi would tell me that he would be the only one that could make the bed because it had to be made in a certain way. And he was the only one that could wash the dishes because he always did it a little bit better. But this is what, what she told me is that, you know, you're the only one here who respects because you're an actual real doctor and so is he. The rest of us, he just tolerates. The look on your face is so funny because it's like uh, your nose is kind of squinched. Like, I think that <laughs> the idea that somebody can only make the bed because they do it the perfect way. Like, isn't that a huge, that would be a huge red flag to me. Well, with... yeah, I mean, and I'm going to be honest here. I'm not even somebody who makes the bed every day. <laughs> well, that, so me neither. Fact, I know. Not only does he want the bed made, but it has to be made with like <laughs> hospital corners. <laughs> I just, I don't understand that mentality. I know. In fact, that, sorry to OCD, but those, that, that kind of stuff would be a huge red flag to me because I can't live my life that way. I'm so exactly. disorganized. Wouldn't that be terrible to be a slave to that type of, right? Well, you I feel have like it's, to do it. You have to live like that. It's about priorities. Yeah. For me, when I wake up in the morning, my priority is taking care of myself so I can take care of my kids. Yeah. Making the bed just mm -hmm. doesn't usually play into that. <laughs> so I, you know what? That's why I got that upturned little nose where I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling the same I way. Mean, I know there are some people, there's a whole book, right, about how you're mm -hmm. supposed to make your bed every morning. I mm -hmm. know for some people it is just like a ritual. It's important and that's cool. Yeah. It's just not me. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> As Randall describes it, he became a sort of buffer between John and Tori. When John would start getting amped up, Tori would call Randall and he would come in and help John settle down. This continued when John and Tori bought some acreage in Idaho, where they hoped to build their own little retreat, but which Randall said was shaping up to be more of a compound, a place where John could get away from the prying eyes of the public. He had first ordered a type of... Uh aluminum barn structure while they're building their, their home, uh, in two-story structure. And standing out on the balcony, it struck me that, you know, where the balcony was, you could see anyone walking down or driving down that road that would come to their house. And uh, he made a funny comment. <laughs> you know, anyone that comes down here, they can get picked off and they wouldn't even know it's coming. I mean, wow, that, what a weird thing to say to me. So would that be another red flag for you? <laughs> you know, and what's happening, what I'm seeing, too, is that Randall seems to be like a peacemaker personality, mm -hmm. which is, you know, bless peacemakers these days, right? right? Can we have more peacemakers? But I was actually looking up what a peacemaker is about. And it's interesting because it's ironic here because historically women are more likely to be peacemakers because standing up and voicing your opinion could lead to being viewed as one of the words we have in the English language that's assigned specific to women. Words like shrew, fishwife, battle axe, and bitch for women who display anger, right? When men, like the guy in our story, obviously express anger, you know, it's okay, but it's really not okay. I mean, it's a huge red flag. And I feel like, you know, Randall's trying to smooth the corners here. Yeah, he was. And he admits it. He said, you know, he dismissed all of this behavior because there was this brilliant guy who, yeah, he was a little eccentric, but 
you know, it was just John's typical dark moods. You know, he wasn't really a bad guy. He just had these dark moments. Mm -hmm. Now, Randall has no idea about the violent end to John's relationship with Kate Jewell. Although John did occasionally talk about his ex. So now Kate is the flight attendant that you started with. Exactly, that gorgeous flight attendant. He would say things about Kate, you know, how they met and all that. And he would call her a 10. And I guess he was, you know, madly in love with her, but uh, extremely jealous. She's a stewardess and, and had a lot of, you know, a lot of people in the airlines, especially pilots and all that. And she would invite him to these get-togethers and all. And she would introduce him, you know, this is so-and-so pilot, whatever. And he would just get incensed. You're screwing him too, aren't you? You're just a lousy slut. You all are. Stewardesses are sluts. Then in private, he would say, oh, I'm so sorry. That will never, ever happen again. I'm so sorry. I, you know, I just love you so much. And I get flipped out and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, she should fall for it. And then it started to escalate until the last time he beat her up. So this is a, a line that we hear so often in these stories where somebody will act out, will be violent or cruel to somebody else and then apologize and, and be forgiven. Mm-hmm. But then continue with that same behavior only escalated. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a, a pattern that we keep seeing. And I just wonder, when is it smart to forgive somebody and give them a second chance? And when does it get to the point where it's like, that's it? I can't forgive you for this one. I got to walk away. Well, and I think, too, there's so many reasons why you want to give someone a check it, second chance. And, you know, in Randall's case, it's like he's trying to rebuild his life. He is probably desperate for this business that they're working together to work. He can no longer be a dentist, something that, you know, he has spent years and years and years. I mean, being a dentist is actually really, really difficult. It's a huge commitment, and it's a lot of schooling. And yeah, I mean, it's basically you're a doctor. Yeah. And and so then to lose all of that because of a car accident, and then you're, you're with this couple who appeared to be like, oh, the perfect couple. And yet, as he gets closer and closer and closer to it it's like that line keeps moving moving further back and i can see why you would want you know he just please couple just get along so i can have you know get my life back yeah there's a lot of things going on here and it was the same pattern that randall was starting to see the the anger the apology the anger the apology he was starting to see this the same kind of pattern between john and tori And John even confirmed it during one of their trips to Idaho when they were working on building that compound. He would always be with Tori everywhere. Go shopping, you know, drop off stuff at the laundry, uh, drive to get the the, the car serviced and things like that. And um, when we were in Idaho, Tori would drive a long distance into town to go buy things. You know, and and he noticed me noticing that. And he would tell me, "I, I let Tori go on this excursion all by herself. And you do that to that face again. more control. You let her. You know, what do you mean? Mm. Oh, well, when they feel that they're trusted, they're more indebted to you. I go, wow, what a weird thing to tell me. And because then when, when Terry came back, she said, wow, he let me go to the store all by myself. Wow, isn't that great? I just couldn't imagine he let me. That, that phrase, I don't even care what comes after it, it, it. No adult should ever utter that phrase. Yeah, I mean... I I feel like I have more to say about it because we've been doing these podcasts and we see how like with the Susan Powell case where it's that slow roll toward complete domination. Yeah, that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. You know, here's that train. So let me just clear up something. They don't know about what happened to Kate. 
Correct. So they know about Kate. They know that there is an ex named Kate. Mm -hmm. But that's about all they know. Okay. So he goes off on Kate, but that's it. They don't know. I mean, it's just like anybody talking about their ex. Yeah, right. Got it. You don't assume that Mm -hmm. something nefarious happened to that person, and that's why they're no longer around. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Randall had so much respect and admiration for this brilliant doctor that he really hoped he could sort of counsel the couple through their difficulties, help them create a, a healthier relationship. But looking back, Randall says it was clearly a futile effort. Uh, it, uh, you know, I, I go a lot by, you know, feeling and, and energy and around him was all negative and it's draining. And then and w- once he's on that rampage and it was getting uh, more and more frequent as far as him melting down and all that uh, as uh, the couple years went by. But yeah, I so wanted to help them out because it's, uh, you know, I look at Turi and I said, you're, you're just a simple person just wanting happiness. So I was just so wanting uh, this to work out for them, especially for her. And, you know, he, he was so, um, oh, just these uh, bouts of anger, just the explosive. And I, you know, I'm from there. I, I don't know even where it comes from. But, uh, you know, for him, I, I wanted to show him that, you know, he's such an asset to society and he can share his knowledge. And, you know, his knowledge can save lives. He was, he was that accomplished. But uh, just, I can't say a demon inside of him, but uh, just so much anger within him and there was a lot of i think self-directed hate and of course you gotta diffuse that hate by putting it on to others but you know there, there was this evil about him i ignored all that kind of stuff because i so wanted him and three to you know, have a really good life and it sounds like not only did he want the best for the couple but this doctor had so much potential like he said he could save lives with his knowledge Mm-hmm. And instead of doing that, he chose to focus on controlling others. Mm-hmm. It's really sad. Yeah. And I think that when people are in positions of power, we actually give them more latitude than other people. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that played into why did Randall keep forgiving him? Why did Tori keep forgiving him? Because he was this charismatic, brilliant, amazing doctor that like you could forgive a lot mm-hmm. because for you know half the time you were around him, it was phenomenal. Yeah. So in August of 2006, John and Tori were living in a retirement community in Gig Harbor, and Randall had separated from his wife for a time. He happened to be living less than a mile away in that same retirement community and still was working at the fitness center. And one night after work, he got a really strange phone call. I get home about uh, 11, 7.15. The phone rings. I go, okay. You know, one, I know it's Tori. So I said, should I answer? Should I not? I'm tired. Oh, gosh. Okay, I'll, I'll answer. And then she's whispering. I go, what are you whispering around? I'm locked in the bedroom. Why are you locked in the bedroom? Oh, John pissed at me. Now, remember, Randall's mostly blind. He can't drive. It's dark. So after a few minutes of contemplation, he decides to just go ahead and play Peacemaker once again. And he walks over to John and Tori's house. I get to their house and he's outside. And I say, hey, what's going on? And I go, ah, you know, this uh, the idol project's not going to get done. And I say, well, why? You, you know, it's uh, you just got a, another season. You know, it's probably going to all be finished. He goes, oh, no, it's not going to get done. So we went inside. We sat at the kitchen table. And, uh, you know, Tori was still locked in the bedroom. And so we're chatting. And there was a, a bottle of port on the table. And he poured me half a glass. And I thought it was really strange because, uh, you know, Tori doesn't allow any alcohol in the house. So we're chatting and uh, you know, he, he's calm, just perfectly calm. And Turi comes out of the bedroom and she stands next to me. And she tells 
John tell Randall the truth. John goes, yeah, you know, I don't talk about those, those kind of things. And, uh, you know, he left the table and he's not pissed or angry. He just, he just left. And I'm guessing he went back into the open bedroom now and he uh, came back with, with his pistol and he's pointing it at Turi. And, you know, I'm missing that left eye and the, the right one still damaged, but I could still see some and his eyes were just black, black, black. And then she's pointing the gun at Turi and ordering her to her knees. And I said, you know, what, what, what is this? <laughs> and, and she goes, and, and don't worry, he, he just does this to make him feel like a man. I go, this is what you guys do in your spare time? This is gross. Yeah, he knew that John was eccentric, a little selfish, you know, maybe conceited. But this was just really beyond the pale. As Randall was trying to collect his thoughts and figure out how he could diffuse this crazy situation, he hears a pair of gunshots. He sees Tori slump to the floor. It occurs to him that there is a sliding glass door behind him, and he didn't hear any of the glass shattering. He thought Tori had slumped down in terror, but now he's wondering whether she's still alive. He can't see her, so he reaches over to touch her arm, and there's no pulse. Tori is dead. I never even thought about me being next because I was just shocked. I was sitting there going, okay, now what? You know, what do I do? And I know John is still around, but uh, he's not even in any of my thoughts because I'm thinking, what do I do? There's a dead body here. And, you know, this is kind of like a Hollywood scene, but it's actually real life. And I, I don't know how to get out of there. Randall says he dropped his head into his hands, thinking, straining to come up with some idea of what he could do. But he didn't have very long to try and figure it out. Moments later, John pointed the gun his way, point blank, directly at Randall's one remaining eye and pulls the trigger. I, I can tell you that being shot in the head where I was shot, it doesn't hurt. It, it feels like someone taking the, the heel of their hand and thumping you quite firmly on your forehead. And so my head caromed back and uh, you know, I found I couldn't open my jaw because that TMJ ligament and my, my jaws were injured and my, my mouth was filling with blood and bone chips. But you know, I wasn't in any pain. I just couldn't open my mouth. And uh, now I can't see totally because he had, he had shot me in, that, in the right eye, which was the one that was partially working. He just remained unbelievably calm through this whole series of events. He should have been dead twice over at this point, but he's still alive, still thinking, and aware that John is still holding that gun. He's walking around, walking around, and he, he leaves the kitchen for maybe five minutes. But I hear him come back. I said, okay, you know, he's, he's probably going to kill me now because he knows I'm still alive. I hear one gunshot. And this is when I think he shot himself in the head. I heard his body hit the ground. Then I heard 11 labored breaths. I counted them. <laughs> 11 labored breaths. And then it stopped. Talk about time slowing down. The threat was gone, but Randall was still covered in blood, unable to speak, unable to see, and feeling very, very cold. I lost some blood, but I don't know how much. But I just had uh, such belief you know, in me that I'm planning ahead. And so I said, if I can just get warm, you know, I can probably get out of this. And so my, my plan that I hatched was, okay, I'm going to find my way back to their bedroom, get underneath the covers and warm up. I'm going to get rest. And when I hear the birds chirping, that means it tells me it's morning. So that way I can get up. And that's what exactly what I did. I, I stayed uh, under the covers there and warmed up and I heard the birds chirping. I said, okay, I don't know what time it is, but it must be morning. So 
you know, I get up and, uh, you know, I can't see anything, of course. So I trail the wall and find my way to the front door. He walked outside and started calling for help. And one of the early risers in that retirement community who had stepped out to grab his paper heard Randall and called 911. It wasn't until much later that he would understand what had really happened that day and what had triggered John's rage. When Turi said, why don't you tell him the truth? She was referring to the attack on Kate Jewell. Apparently, Kate had kept in contact with the Oregon deputy who was in charge of her case, prodding him to keep looking for John. So the deputy had put John on a list of the 10 most wanted criminals in Curry County. That list was printed in the local paper, and somehow Tori got a hold of the article and confronted her husband with it. Randall says there was also plenty of physical evidence of John's plans that were later found in his home. In an upstairs loft, there's neatly organized, of course, but just bags and bags of stuff. And uh, what I learned later from what the police had said is that he had stored all of these uh, you know, different type of IDs and passports with all different types of names on them. And he was well-prepared, planning for an escape. And, and I think why he decided to stay there and shoot himself is that, you know, I, I think that one, he got tired of running and then there was no place to run now. Because, uh, you know, with with Turi dead and that place in Idaho, you know, already paid for is that, you know, there's no way for for him to get away anywhere and he had no money. So uh, I I think it finally caught up with him or the situation told him that uh, there was no way out for him. Now, remember, the attack on Kate took place in Oregon and she had moved up to Orcas Island to start over because there had never been a murder there. She had no idea that the man she was hiding from had also moved to this same part of Western Washington. Randall, meantime, was back in recovery now after being shot after the car accident, trying to again regain some semblance of a normal life. He went to a school for the blind. Now that he had completely lost all of his vision, he had to learn to read Braille and acquired software that would help him read his computer screen out loud. He was determined to go back to college to study psychology so he could understand what had caused this brilliant, charismatic man to become a killer. I started thumbing through all the literature with antisocial personality disorder, psychopathy, sociopathy, and things like that. And, you know, the the commonality calculated intentional harm done to people and then uh, the person being remorseless. And that's him. That's exactly him. And so, you know, mine, I'm trying to dig deeper in that. And I go, why? Why of all things? And then, you know, what I've learned since is that, uh, you know, some people, this this is according to Tom Montauk, who's done a lot of research on this, is that there are people that are spirited, there are people that are spiritless, and there are people that are spirit asleep. And, you know, John is, I would consider, spiritless. He didn't care. He cared about himself. And anything other than himself, he gets angry and uh, wants to be the center of attention, wants to be the one that came up with a brilliant idea, so he wants to be it, and that this killed him, that he couldn't talk to other people about that, uh, you know, with with his actions, because when we were out in public, he would not say anything. Because of his actions against others that has, uh, you know, caused him to be in hiding, he couldn't be himself, and I think that made him even lonelier. So in the end, Randall thinks that the violence between John and Kate is actually what led to him committing suicide because he couldn't be himself. He, he couldn't tell anybody who he really was or 
where he really came from. I think that, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. Yeah. I mean, first, what Randall describes as a survivor is it just flies in the face of everything we've seen on any crime show about what happens to a victim in terms of what we think is going to happen. He couldn't, you know, he went and lied down and he's thinking when the birds chirp, I'm going to go out. And like, it's just like a very thoughtful, but I, I mean, almost unbelievable how he was able to hold his wits together with half of his face blown off, his eye gone, totally blind, his jaw, you know, bits of bone. And I mean, the way he describes it, it's another thing that's like, how can you rebuild after this? I mean, and, and it's at like, least he had some experience. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's he the resilience died in the car wreck. He had to go through over a year of recovery for that yeah. and never really got, you know, his full functioning back. Mm-hmm. I guess in a way that gave him some kind of confidence in himself. As he said, you know, I had confidence in myself that if I could follow this plan that I had set out, that I'd make it through the night. And he was right. Yeah, he was. Well, I have been binging on TED Talk since we talked about, you know, doing this particular episode that feature resilience. What makes one person turn a different way? You know, you can say that about a victim. You can say that about, you know, Ted Bundy because we were talking about that childhood well, that he had. you could say it about it, just a child who gets an F on a test. Yeah. I mean, really, all right. of us have to learn some level of resilience. Yeah. So one of the speakers that I was listening to, her name's Lucy Hone, and she said there's, there's three things you need for uh, resilience. Number one, that you understand that shit happens. They know that suffering is a part of life and knowing it means that you don't question why me. Right. right? And you understand that it's not personal. Yeah. There's, that, like, you can't prevent you, it. You and, and, and I was actually working this with my daughter this morning because she was talking about something that happened when she was like in fifth grade and it was a hugely significant thing to her. And I tapped into this and I said, Whoever said that life was fair or that, you know, shit wasn't going to happen to you. The second thing is that resilient people are really good at choosing carefully where they select their attention. They focus on things they can change and somehow accept the things they cannot. Number three is, is what I'm doing helping or harming me. Be kind to yourself. You know, your bid to get that promotion, recovering from a heart attack, whatever it is, be kind to yourself. That is so hard, though, because you often have competing needs or wants and desires. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I want to go get that raise, but I also want to go spend time with my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not always the easiest thing to do. And I think if you go back to this, what she said, and I, since I've been listening to her, I've been doing this in my own life, is what I'm doing helping or harming me. When I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed and I'm seeing all this <laughs> bad news, I've been doing this thing where it's like, is this helping me yeah. or is this harming me? I mean, it's such, such a simple thing. And obviously, we're talking about resilience with, with Randall is completely like 360 degrees in an opposite direction. But I think that we can look from our interview, we can listen, we can hear how he's, you know, using his sense of humor. He's looking at like what happened and trying to understand it and accepting that this happened to him. But it's not going to define him, which I can really appreciate so much. Yeah, the fact that he went back to school and studied psychology mm-hmm. after becoming permanently blind. Yeah. And, and that just takes so much focus and faith in yourself Mm -hmm. and perseverance. I mean, all these qualities that Randall just seems to have in spades. Yeah, he really does. And I think that that's the the shining light of the story is the resilience that, you know, he's even talking about John as if 
he's so kind to him in the way that he describes him. Yeah, like, there was another part of this interview where he talks about how everybody is put on this earth for a reason, even if we don't understand what it is. And mm-hmm. it may not be a popular opinion, but he said even John was put on this earth for a reason. I don't know what that was. Maybe it was to teach me something. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> there's another thing that I've been looking into since we've been doing this because I knew we were going to do this uh, episode. And it's like, you and I are not forgiving type <laughs> people I'm learning as we're doing this. I like, can forgive easily. If I'm going to forgive, it will happen easily and quickly. Yeah. But if it doesn't happen right away, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> well, I think that like when it comes to our family and people messing with our family, yeah. we're not one to be quick on forgiveness because we're like protecting yes. protecting our own. So what I found is is that some people are naturally more forgiving than others, but even if you're a grudge holder, the good news is is that almost anyone can learn how to be more forgiving. But see, right there from the premise, I just mm-hmm. want to say I don't agree with that premise. What? Tell me why. I don't think you have to either be holding a grudge or be forgiving. I feel like there's a middle ground which is just not even thinking about that person. That's where I try to live. Yeah, I mean I do too, but I think that in my life when I've looked at relationships where I hold a grudge and I'm really angry and it's it's really like Palpable. really deep, <laughs> like childhood anger kind of stuff, if I didn't forgive I'm, – I'm talking about like with my mom. Like we had a really rocky childhood. There was a lot of anger that I had as a teenager. But then once I realized like this is hurting me, like me holding on to this anger – is really like messing with my life. And I know that, you know, things that happened to us when we were kids, like she wasn't having a great time either, right? So it allowed me to kind of forgive over time because I'm trying to teach this to my kids because they're like, how could you forgive? Well, and you also want to continue to have a relationship with your mom. Yeah. And I think you do have to forgive in that case or hold a grudge because the person's right there. In my case, there is one person I won't ever forgive, but they're not in my life. So I don't have to forgive them, and I don't have to hold a grudge. I just don't think about them. I know, but see, that's the thing where our reptilian cortex, that rat brain, that deep, deep brain, do you know that it's really not affecting you in some way? Yes. You do. Because it did for a long time, and -hmm. I've moved on. And, you know, my kids now will sometimes ask me about it, and I change the side. I just say, I don't want to talk about it because that's not my life now. That's not my future. Mm -hmm. I'd rather focus on the things that that I want to focus on. Yeah. And and I think that that I think it really depends on, you know, people have you have to do what works for you. You know, you can't just forgive someone because, you know, you feel like guilty for not forgiving them. But um, there are some some bad effects of holding a grudge. If you're unforgiving, you might bring anger and bitterness into every relationship and new experience. So that's that's where I was going. Like, it sounds like you've made peace. Well, yeah, that's for... where I'm like, I just don't think about it. So I don't yeah. I don't bring that anger with me because I've let it go. Yes, it doesn't, okay. doesn't mean I've forgiven, but I have let it go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then there's, there's that other thing where you become so wrapped up in the wrong that you can't enjoy the present. Mm. You become depressed or anxious, feel that your life lacks meaning or purpose. Uh, loss. Anyway, these are some of the things, some of the signs where, you know, I think that if somebody killed somebody in your family, you know, it's a lot different than what we're talking yeah, about Yeah, how do you right forget? Now. Like, that's... How do you... I think... And that's where we have, like, are on the same page with, like, uh, how can you forgive this person that's done this? I might want to try to understand them. Yeah. And I might want to try to make peace in a way with what happened, like, mm-hmm. just to move on, like you were saying. But I don't think that's the same as forgiveness. 
And maybe it's the definition. I mean, maybe my definition of forgiveness is not the same as, as what other people, how other people define it. And sometimes there's nothing better than time. Yeah. I mean, really, no matter how much, time you, all wounds. How much you want to forgive <laughs> or you want to forget, like, there's nothing like the passage of time. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope so. So so apparently Randolph is not holding a grudge. Randall. I'm sorry. Apparently Randall is not holding a grudge, he which is I find not. remarkable, remarkable. And, you know, hats off. So what's coming up next week? So next week, Kim, we'll take a look at a case that goes beyond comprehension. A woman who not only physically and mentally abuses her borders, but forces her children to take part in that abuse. That's sick. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, don't forget to give us a positive rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime.